This is the Great Discontent Podcast. This conversation was recorded in front of a studio audience at the Wythe Hotel in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, as part of TGD Live, a monthly interview event series. Your lovely and well-dressed host for the night was Tina Esmaker. Enjoy the show. Our first guest is a photographer based in New York City. His perspective on everyday life and the people he interacts with is unlike anything we know, allowing him to create work that is at once subtle and breathtaking. He is part of the art and photography collective Tinker Street, and he has worked for Nike, Samsung, The Guardian, Bloomberg, and many more. Please give a very warm welcome to Daniel Sung Lee. Daniel, I think you have a fan club. <laughs> You've got a cheering section here tonight. Don't be fooled. They're only here to laugh at me. <laughs> Are they all of your Instagram? They know how uncomfortable I am right now. <laughs> oh, well, you know, I have to say thank you for doing the show because you confessed to me earlier that you, that you don't speak ever and that Never. you almost said no to me, but you couldn't say no to me. So thank you for saying yes. Oh my gosh, you're welcome. I'm so honored. <laughs> that you're here tonight. And I hope that at the end of the night, you will be glad that you said yes. Yeah. So, I hope so too. We'll you, see. We'll see how this goes. You, you will be. I promise. So, so I'm super excited to learn more about your story. And I want to start at the beginning. Uh, not birth, but early childhood. So sure. tell me a little bit about where you grew up and how your childhood influenced your ideas about creativity and what was possible. Sure. Um, so I grew up in a small suburban town called Diamond Bar, which is in Los Angeles. <laughs> we got some Diamond Bar fans. <laughs> um, we're, like, famous for Alex Prager, the soccer player, a few, like, K-pop stars, but that's about it. <laughs> um, but, you know, like, growing up, I was, I would say I was, like, a pretty creative kid, but I will also say that I was, and I still am, like, very much a perfectionist, um, very analytical in my head a lot. <laughs> I, I, like, you know, I spiral all the time. Um, but, you know, and if I'm going to be completely honest, um, I don't think that, like, naturally makes a creative person. I actually think it, like, hinders the creative process. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like, you know, I've, I've worked through a lot of that over the years, and I've gotten a lot better... Um, not overthinking everything in terms of, like, my professional life. Um, my personal life, that's a different story. <laughs> um, but that being said, you know, I, I did grow up, like, playing instruments all my life. Um, I taught myself how to play the guitar when I was really young. Uh, I played, like, woodwind and percussion instruments all throughout school. Um, I may have even been in, like, a musical <laughs> My junior year of high school, which is completely out of left field. Um, I'm, sure, I'm sure all of my friends were, like, thoroughly confused. But I'm sure most of them just, like, felt like, hmm, like, maybe gay. <laughs> which is like, <laughs> maybe, um, maybe. But, um, like, so, I, I was very lucky as a kid because my parents were super supportive of me and my older brother, um, they wanted to pers- uh, us to pursue, like, anything we wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, my parents were pretty creative growing up as well. My mom, um, she studied ceramics when she was in school. My dad wanted to be a writer. Um, 
but unfortunately they didn't pursue careers in like art um, due to like lack of resources. They mm-hmm. didn't grow up that wealthy. Um, but because of that reason, I think, you know, they wanted to give me and my brother that opportunity to like do whatever we wanted, which I'm just like so thankful for. Um, but yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. No, that's amazing. And that was something that you had shared with me. We were prepping for the show. You, you sent me some, some kind of background yeah. secret, <laughs> secret information, which we'll talk about tonight. But, um, you said, you know, growing up in a Korean family that that was very, um, you know, not the norm for them to be so supportive of your creativity and to say, whatever you want to do, we'll, we'll support you right. versus having this kind of tra- trajectory planned out for you. Um, so tell me a little bit about when you discovered photography and how that became a part of your life, because it sounds like that maybe happened a little bit later. Sure. Um, it starts a little bit earlier. So when, I guess... Like, my first, ex- like, memory of, like, the visual arts, mm-hmm. um, I must have been, like, six or seven years old. Um, my parents, I, I, I loved drawing at the time, um, and my parents placed me in drawing classes with my older brother, um, and I remember we had to draw, like, this bowl of fruit, mm-hmm. and I remember, like, being so frustrated because I was terrible at it, but I was comparing myself to my older brother, and keep in mind, he's, like, six years older than me. And I had this, like, crazy, like, idea that I needed to be just as good as him, or if not better. Mm-hmm. Um, I have that, like, annoying personality trait where if I know I'm not going to be good at something, I, like, won't touch it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, like, that was, like, a huge bummer for me because, you know, that was my first experience with, like, art. And I always equated art to, like, drawing or painting because that's all I knew. Um, and so... Like, even at that young age, I knew I wanted to do something creative. Mm -hmm. And when that happened, I was like, oh, God, like, that's it for me, you know? I have to figure something else out. Um, But long story short, a few years go by. um, I must have been, like, 10 or 11, like, starting middle school. um, I got really infatuated and, like, interested in cameras. More so, like, the mechanics of the camera more than, like, photography itself. Um, and that's because, like, my dad had all these, like, old film cameras around the house, like, displayed, like, beautifully around the house, and... But no one was using them? No one. Like, I ha- I actually don't know why he had those around the house. He probably just thought it would be, like, a cool, like, interior <laughs> design choice. <laughs> um, but, you know, I would eventually, like, carry them around. Like, there was, like, one film camera that worked, um, and I would just, you know, I started shooting with it documenting my friends but at that point it was never like a creative output for me it was just more about documenting yeah was that like middle school high school like do you remember what I was like that was? 10 so like beginning oh, of middle school that's pretty young okay. yeah I was yeah I would just you know shoot going to Disneyland with me and my friends yeah. like it was never a creative thing for me and then you took your film to like Kmart or CVS yeah. or some drugstore yeah, and like Costco like, yeah, and then cheapest, an hour later you go back. Cheapest film processing, by the way, and they do oh, a really good job. I didn't job. do Costco. I went to yeah. Walmart sometimes. Walmart? Walmart. That was pretty no, cheap. No, terrible. You don't want to print with them. <laughs> <laughs> well, good to know. That's all I had. Costco's really good. Okay. Yeah, or if you're here in New York, it's like I, I didn't grow up in New York, yeah. so I didn't have access yeah, yeah, yeah. to Costco. Or <laughs> I know there's Costco in the Midwest, too. I all the too. good tips. I didn't, I didn't have that. Yeah. Um, so you started shooting, and you weren't thinking, this is something I'm going to do. It's just no. fun. I had... I have access to this camera, and I'm photographing yeah. friends. 
Um, yeah, so at that point, I didn't even know like photography was like a viable career option. Um, but like that sort of changed when I, I would say like beginning of high school. So what is that like, thirteen, fourteen? I got my like first camera from my parents. Um, it was like a cheap Sony like point and shoot. And um, I remember going like out into my backyard and uh, taking like the most like basic like stock photo of like a flower, <laughs> like terrible photo. And um, like I remember looking at it and being like, oh my God, did I just create art? <laughs> But, like, in all seriousness, like, at that point, like, photography was so exciting for me because after, like, you know, I quit drawing because I was like, I'm not doing that. I'm not good enough. Um, so when photography came into my life, it was like, oh, my God, like, it was, there was tangible evidence with that photo of me, like, creating something that I, like, saw in my head or even creating something that I saw on the internet, which is, like, probably, like, Flickr. With, and so... Being able to create something that, like, I saw, like, a more experienced photographer make was, like, very exciting for me. Because there was, like, um, how do you say, like, I don't know, there was, like, benchmarks for me to, like, reach. Yeah. Yeah. So you had that kind of aha moment, we'll call it, uh, of, like, oh, I can do this. Like, I'm, I'm good at something sure. creative. And then as you were finishing up high school and thinking about what was next, what was that process like? Was, um, were you thinking about studying photography um, so not quite yet. Uh, even at that point, I never thought like, oh, I, I'm going to be a photographer. Um, I thought, you know, I, every day in high school, like I would go home and watch the Food Network every day, literally like 30 minute meals. It was like my jam. Um, <laughs> um, and so like up until like my junior year of high school, um, I really thought I was going to, I was like this close to applying to culinary schools and to become a chef. Um, but, like, that sort of changed. Like, so around that same time, my cousin coincidentally became a chef. And as much as he, like, loved cooking, he hated his life. Like, he hated his job. Yeah. Like, working holidays, uh, working long days. Um, and because of that, I was like, nope, I'm not doing that. So, like, Tom, if you're listening, thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about your life. <laughs> Uh, but literally for that, I think he, like, saved my life. Like, thank God for that. But also, like, my brother, I should also say this. My brother um, is a graphic design designer now. Um, he went to Art Center College of Design, which is where I went to. Um, and going to, like, visit his school, going to his grad show, um, I got to see, like, the photo gallery of the students. And that's when I realized, like, oh, this is actually, like, a thing I can do and, like, be good at and, like, make some money. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Which is awesome. always, like, the end goal for me. <laughs> you, you, have to, you have to be able to make money, right? Exactly. Um, so, yeah, so you ended up going to Art Center College. I did. Uh, College of Design. And then during those years, you discovered something called Foot Camp. Mm-hmm. which, for those of you who don't know what Foot Camp is, it is, it, it, and, well, do you want to say what it is? You went for, like, five years. Okay, so you, I'll try to do this. Well, okay. Um, I have notes, so I can yeah. say. But, okay, you, okay. You, sh- you should go ahead. All right. I was being generous with yeah. the mic. <laughs> um, I'll go for it. So it's, it's an invite-only creative ret- retreat for photographers. 
organized by Laura Bruno Minor, and you had to apply, so it's invite only, you get selected, and you were selected to go the first year, and you were the youngest photographer there, and you ended up going for the next few years. So I imagine that was a really meaningful experience for you. What did you learn during your multiple experiences at food camp? Everything. Like, you like, don't understand. Dish. Like, I was... <laughs> It was my first year in school. I had no clue what I was doing other than, like, able to, like, F-stops and shutter speeds. Like, I don't, with the business of photography, I had, you know, I was so green. Um, And the retreat ranged from, like, people, you know, transitioning into the photography world to, like, very experienced professional photographers. Um, And being so new to it, like, I had everything to gain from them. And I, like, some of them are here. Um, and I like owe everything to them because like I learned, I literally learned like everything that I know, like school was amazing. Um, but for anyone out there, like in school, like try to do more than that, like internships, like, uh, assisting, find a photo community. Like that's where you get like the real life experience. And yeah, like I owe my career to them for sure. That's incredible. And then you, you know, one of the things that we like to talk about a lot uh, via TGD is risk. And you took a big risk <laughs> in 2013 and left school. Yeah. Uh, I can say dropped out, but left for other opportunities. And you moved from California to New York yeah. and decided to pursue photography. And it was around that time that you had signed with Tinker Street. Um, so tell me... Uh, how did you come to that, to that decision? Like, did you, were, were you thinking, you know, I should, I needed to finish school. It's a logical, practical, responsible thing to do, but I, I might have opportunities in New York. Like, how, how did, what were you feeling about that decision and, and what did that process look like for you? Sure. Well, first of all, I, I like to say that I took a, like extended leave of absence, which I'm still continuing okay. today. Fair enough. I'm not a quitter. <laughs> um, but no, I did quit school, so... <laughs> Um, I was in like my third year of school. I had like six months left. In terms of like, tuition, it was like three million dollars. It was like a lot. <laughs> so I was like, no, I'm like, I'm gonna leave. Like, it was a very, very hard decision for me because, especially because I don't have a degree. Mm-hmm. Um, but at that time, like, there was just a lot of things lining up for me, and I was work. I start. I was starting to work. Um, and to be honest, like, I did, I learned so much in school, and I don't regret going. And I completely recommend people doing it, especially, like, at a school like Art Center College of Design. Um, they really prep you for, like, the business of photography, like, commercial photography. Um, I don't know what other art schools are like, but I can say from my experience, I learned a lot. And I wouldn't be here today without it. Um, but at that time, when I was deciding, um, yeah, there was just a lot of things lining up. I, you know, I, I started shooting um, a lot of, for like a few editorial magazines, nothing major. Um, I was, you know, interning at Shire Day, which is an ad, ad agency, um, the one in LA. And I remember like one of my favorite photographers at the time, Nicholas Haggard, came in to show his book. And I was like, at my desk, like, freaking out. And all the art players were like, Daniel, come over. And I, like, introduced myself to him. And what's crazy is that, so he signed with my 
agent uh, till this day. And I remember that night, Jesse, my agent, emailed me being like, hey, I just wanted to introduce myself. Like, how's it going? And I totally thought Nick, you know, told Jesse about me, but it was like a crazy coincidence. Um, long story short, like, I started interning for Nick. Um, I eventually signed with Jesse. Um, and, like, a lot of, like, stupid logistical things happened. Like, my lease was, you know, ending. Um, and, like, you know, I wanted to move to New York. And, like, I did that, like, a week after I ended school. Um, it was definitely a hard decision, but I have, like, no regrets about it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and when you were doing it, was part of you just, like, I'm not going to even think about it. I'm just going to do it. Like, it feels good. It feels like the right thing. Like, things are lining up. Or were you overthinking? And what did your, was your family supportive of it as well? Oh. Uh, <laughs> for those of you at home listening, I'm doing the spiraling motion to my head because, no, I was definitely, like, thinking a lot and overthinking everything. Um, but I don't, I don't know. I think I knew it was the right decision, though. I mean, signing w- with Jesse with Tinker Street helped a lot, I, I'm, I must admit. Um, it just, like, gave me that confidence to do it and just, like, go for it. Um, but, sorry, what was your question? <laughs> uh, no, I was asking if you were overanalyzing that decision or yeah. you just kind of intuitively trusted your gut and said, no, this is what I need to do. And you said, no, I definitely overanalyzed and thought about everything. When I look back, I I'm, see myself as a, like, completely d- different person. If, I, that, if that was me today, I would never do that. Um, but I think I was just, like, naive to think that, like, oh, this is going to be great. Like, and I, I had an amazing support system with, like, all the food camp people, um, Jesse. Um, I, had a, I had an amazing mentor in L.A., Marin Levinson, who uh, owns Red Eye Reps, um, who I also entered for. Um, and they were all very supportive. And, you know, my dad, I know you asked about my parents. Um, my dad at the time, he was obviously, like, worried for me, but... A big part of why I left school was, you know, the money issue. And my dad was struggling, and I didn't want to continue that. Um, so I think he was, like, sort of happy and, like, relieved. Because <laughs> it's not a cheap school. It's actually, the New York Times did an article back in, like, I don't know, 2012 or something. Art Center is, like, the number one most expensive school in the States. And I don't know how that works. It's, like, after taxes or something. So it's not a cheap school, for sure. So that was, like, my, one of my big reasons. So Dad let out a sigh of relief about that tuition that he's not going to have to pay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you've been in New York since 2013, then? Is that around? It's been four years, so, about, yeah, oh, Okay, about four years, yeah. So how, um, like, how would you say your career has evolved for you in the last four years since you've been in New York? Um, oh, God. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. It was rough for me. Yeah, tell us how yeah. rough it was because we all want to feel better about ourselves. Yeah. I wish more people talked about this, but it was not easy. Um, like, I don't know. I, I, on top of, like, the weather, like, stupid things like that. Um, like, the career itself was, like, fine. Um, but I, I definitely felt, like, the worst creative rut of my life. Um, like, even to, like... I just started, like, started feeling better last year. It was, like, three years of, like, oh, God. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, it, was, it was definitely hard. And 
you know, a lot of depression had to do with that. Um, like, I went through some things. Like, my mom passed away, like, a month before I started school. So I never, like, really dealt with that. So, um, so once I was, like, out in the real world, it was like, oh, God, like, yeah. here's all my, like, boxes I have to unbox and, like, deal with. It just uh, follows you. You have to yeah, deal with it. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, you know, I did. I've worked through some of that, and yeah. I feel a lot better now. Um, but, yeah, it was definitely hard. But, you know, there was, like, a steady growth. Um, which I'm, like, super thankful for. It it was definitely not as, like, quick as I, like, wanted it to be. But I don't think it ever is, right? No. Yeah. Never. Yeah. And I want to talk a little bit more about your experience of experiencing that creative rut. But I want to wait until we bring up our second guest because I think she's going to have some interesting things to add to that. Me too. I'm so, excited. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, so the last thing I want to ask you before I bring her up is um, I know you're working on a personal project right now. And you've you were telling me that... Um, you've been thinking, wanting to do work that matters. And one of the things that matters to you is doing more LGBTQ advocacy work. And you have a personal project related to that right now. Is that something you can tell us a little bit about? I can tell you a little bit more about it. But just in general, like, I think, you know, with our, like, current president, um, (laughs) um, not to say too much, but I think we're in a time where, like, it's... It's evident that, like, LGBT people, like, need to be more visible now more than ever. Um, And with, like, all the, like, crazy stuff that's happening in the world, I think think a lot of artists and creatives feel, like, the need to, like, make work that matters and, like, that makes a change. I don't know about you guys, but, like, I definitely do. No shame if you don't, though. (laughs) Um, Like... And so, like, you know, I've, I've gone through, I think that's what helped me in this past year. Like, I sort of had a, like, awakening. Like, oh, I want to do something that matters. So I have, like, a few personal projects that I started before, um, like, Trump got elected. Okay. I took a little break after that because it was... We all did because yeah. it was devastating. Yeah, but, um, so, I'm, you know, it's... It's basically my experience uh, as, like, a gay Asian man in, like, living in this world. Um, But, like, one of the – I'll say one of the projects. um, I'm, like, documenting, like, successful, like, gay Asian – specifically gay Asian uh, uh, males because I feel like if I had, you know – those type of role models growing up, mm-hmm. my life would be very, very different. Um, so I'm like, I want to create that for, you know, someone younger who might not, who might be in like the same situation as me, like growing up. Yeah, that's incredible. Well, I'm excited to see it. Thank you. Look, you've likely heard of MailChimp, and there's a good reason why. More than 15 million people use MailChimp to connect with their customers, market their products, and grow their e-commerce businesses every day. But here's something you might not know. You can run Facebook ad campaigns right from MailChimp. Use the same simple design tools they give you for email to create great-looking ads. You can target ads at your audience or people similar to them, which is a great way to reach new customers. Track sales, customers, and subscribers, all in one unified dashboard for both advertising and email. If you're looking to up your email game or try your hand at a Facebook ad campaign, MailChimp has the tools you need to grow your company in a way that feels right for you. We want to thank them for supporting the Great Discontent Podcast. MailChimp. Send better email, some more stuff. 
Our second guest is obsessed with how we can find more creativity and meaning in our daily work. Her latest project is Hurry Slowly, a new podcast about how being more productive, creative, and resilient is as simple as slowing down. It launches October 10th. And also, you can subscribe to it. It's already in iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, all those places. You can subscribe, and you're going to want to because it's awesome. Um, she was formerly the founding director of the 99U Conference and editor-in-chief of 99U.com, which earned two Webby Awards for Best Cultural Blog. She's given talks at leading creative companies and conferences all over the world, and her writing and ideas have been featured in outlets including NPR, New York Magazine, Fast Company, and many more. Please give a warm welcome to Jocelyn K. Gly. Hello. Hello. Welcome. Thank you. It's wonderful to have you here. I feel like you guys are expecting me to solve some problems or something. You both like look at me. Something like that. <laughs> That's exactly why I'm <laughs> we here. We thought though. that we could go first and talk about all our problems and then bring you up and you could solve them. Does that work for you? Perfect. That's, that's what I actually choose to do in my life. You've generally. done a lot my of my relationships. I always do that. Great, great. You, you've done a lot of research, so <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna draw from that research now. Um, so I want to start with you, the same place that I started with Daniel, which is just tell me a little bit about where you grew up and how your childhood influenced your ideas about creativity and what is possible. Um, okay, I'll tell you about that. I don't know if there's an influence. Um, mostly, I was climbing trees as a child. That was. The primary influence was trees. Um, literally every photo, my mom pulls out a new one. She's like, oh, it's you and a tree. Here we go again. Um, but um, yeah, and then just tons and tons of reading, like from complete crap to very interesting things. Um, but I would say I just, I kind of started to like evolve into, uh, I don't know, some little seedling of my present self. Um, when I was 16, this is the 90s, mind you, I created a zine. Um, that I used to pass out in high school. I had like a matching t-shirt with the masthead. It was really cool or not cool, depending on your perspective. Um, it had a lot of clip, clip art in it, if anyone remembers clip art. Was, I remember. Yeah. It was Never pretty, forget that. It was pretty cutting edge. Um, but yeah, so I mean, that was kind of the beginning. Like for me, it's always been about like communicating and I think just sharing ideas and culture and kind of, I don't know, trying to... Um, you know, I don't change the way people think or, you know, kind of inspire people to action. So were you drawn to reading and writing early on? And then did you, you know, throughout school, I guess, like, what was your, I, I know, I know what you did at 99U and I know what you're focusing on now, but like, there's a big gap. <laughs> there's a big gap. That I just don't, yeah. I don't know, yeah. you know, what did you study? Um, how did you get on this path? Was mm -hmm. it, did you know exactly what you were doing? Was it luck and mistakes and yeah. other things. Yeah, no, I'm a big fan of like demystifying the creative process or demystifying the career process. So I'll do, okay, let me do, I'll do the quick highlights and then I'll do like the like terrible awkward transitions between the highlights. So we can do the like what people usually say and then like the, what they don't say. Perfect. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so it's always kind of about ideas, writing, reading, publishing. Um, so I, um, you know, did a bunch of internships as a high schooler, you know, working at a Newsweekly. Then I interned in college at the MIT Press. I studied um, screenwriting and literature when I was in school, like snuck into this little MFA screenwriting program when I was an undergraduate. Um, and then afterwards, I actually ended up working at a small web design firm, like it's this like Jane of all trades, which was completely random, but I kind of learned everything about like 
you know, the digital world and like the basics, right? And then I got laid off as like the dot bomb period, like 2001. I literally worked in this giant mill where like monster.com was and like all of these like sad like e-commerce before anyone wanted to buy anything online like types of businesses. Um, and then, so after I got laid off from that, um, I ended up moving to New York City and I ended up working at this company, Flavor Pill, which still exists. Um, that was in about 2001, so it was a very different landscape then. But for those of you who don't know, like they basically did emails, and it was kind of like all of these emails about like sort of the coolest, um, you know, cultural events happening in lots of different cities: New York, LA, San Francisco, London. Um, and then there are also emails about like books and music and so forth, kind of like daily. It was like in this daily candy like time period. Um, and I was there, I think their first full-time employee and then ended up working there, um, you know, for five years. And so I was like overseeing a staff of five people. And so it's a lot of like, you know, writing, publishing, figuring out how to build and launch new digital projects. Um, and then I left there and then, um, I ended up moving to LA, back to New York. We'll get into that. We go to the ugly transition part. And then um, I came back and I ended up basically meeting Scott Belsky and starting to work, who's the founder of Behance, which is sort of like the parent company of 99U, this thing that I did. Um, and then, yeah, they had just done um, one 99U conference at that point, And we decided to spin it off into like a full... Oh, thank you. You're going to help me. It's so hard to do that with one hand. Um, they decided to spin it off into a full editorial property. Um, but so essentially, right, the through line has always been kind of writing, publishing, um, you know, and then kind of originally like cultural events. And then, of course, getting into 99U, like I ended up doing that because I always had my own creative projects kind of on the side. And I was like, oh, wouldn't this be a great opportunity to be able to interview tons of people, learn about their creative process, learn about how they make ideas happen, and then I can, you know, filter all of that back into my own work. Um, but so I said ugly transition. So what I've, like, through all of this, what I've realized, I feel like every major transition takes, like, at least for me, like, two years. Um, so, okay, so when I left, when I left Flavor Pill, I ended up taking a, like, terrible job in Los Angeles where this, like, CEO of a sort of, like, pretty terrible like music website um told me that he like wanted me to like reinvent it he's like I love what you did at Flavor Pill like come reinvent it I'm gonna pay you a lot of money and I was like great like someone wants to pay me money you know like I work in publishing cool um and um and then it was a terrible mistake and I quit after 10 months and came back to New York um and then kind of freelanced until I figured out what was gonna happen I ended up meeting Scott we worked on, um, I helped him do some research and various things for his book, Making Ideas Happen, and then all of that led to 99U. And then um, I was at 99U for six years, and then when that ended, um, when I decided to move on from that, I was like, I'm going to write a book, and then I like was like, you know, locked in my office at home, and I was like, wait, I think I actually have three books to write, and like, oh, which one should I write? And then I was like, wait, I'm not ready to write this book. Okay, I actually am not interested in writing that book. Like, maybe I'll write this other book. And then I was like, you know what? I just, you know, I really fucking hate email. I'm going to write a book about how much I hate email and how much it's ruining everyone's life and how we can fix this. <laughs> and so that was weirdly the book I wrote, which happened last year. And um, it's called Unsubscribe. It's great. You guys should all read it. Um, <laughs> But anyway, and then thus ensued another year, 
And, um, and then this October, uh, that book launched last year, this October, um, I'm about to launch this podcast, Hurry Slowly. And um, I don't know, that was like another two-year transition of kind of like, and now it's like, I feel like I'm kind of like getting back into this new zone, but it takes time. I feel like those transitions take time. Yeah, they do. Um, also, I have to plug your book. I did read her book, Unsubscribe, and it's wonderful and you definitely should all read it. And then you should pass it on to a friend who has really bad email etiquette and just say, read this. So you don't have to be mean to them about how like, you know, sending introductions before asking both parties. I mean, that's Guys, just, it's if not you half don't, past amateur hour. Okay? Yeah. Now I'll just, yeah. Okay. You're going <laughs> to learn one thing tonight. And that one thing is if you want to introduce people via email, you have to ask both people before you make the match. Okay. Pro tip. Yes. Pro tip. But it's not just about email, Tina. It's about life. It is about life. But right now, but I mean, email I go pretty deep. is such I go pretty a deep. big part of my that's life. What that's what I'm saying. So too you've big, improved my life. Too big. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to talk about, after you transitioned out of 99U, you, you've written on your site about how you were burnt out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think so many of us are, we are experiencing burnout, or we have, and we're either in denial, like, no, 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 I don't want to be burnt out, so I'm not, or we just don't know what to do mm-hmm. about it, um, because not everyone can take time off, you know, we do have to make money and pay bills, and so I guess I'm wondering if, like, did you have a moment when you realized you were burnt out, and how did you begin to take care of yourself again and recover from mm-hmm. that? Can we do a poll? Can we do an audience poll? We can. Okay, I'm just curious. Um, okay, so how many of you, like, raise your hand if you feel like you're working pretty hard? Don't be shy. Okay. Um, okay, now put up your hand if you feel like, I'm sorry, this is so inappropriate for an audio podcast. Um, most of the people raise their hands, listeners. Um, <laughs> if you feel like you could continue working at this pace for the next 10 or 20 years, raise your hand. Okay, so that was like no, that was like no one. Okay, so this and this, <laughs> so this is kind of the question that I've been obsessed with, right? Like, I think we're all working at this pace that is just completely unsustainable, um, and part of that, you know, comes out of my own personal experience, certainly of adapting that pace myself, but also, um, you know, just feeling like we're kind of all in this in this boat. Um, but for me, I mean, I think the thing about burnout is it's really hard to see it when you're in it. That's the problem, right, is you don't really know. Um, but it's super toxic. Like, you not only, you know, I mean, right, you're sort of, you know, you tend to be kind of in a bad mood all the time. You tend to be, um, you start to maybe disengage from your work or just feel a little bit apathetic. Um, but I've also read studies where it kind of has this, like, very toxic effect also on the people around you, like, in your personal relationships, in your um, work relationships. Like, it kind of just, like, bleeds out into you and other people in this really you know, kind of negative way. Um, But I would say, actually, it's so funny. Like, I mean, I literally moved. Okay, so I left my job at 99U. I moved to Portland. I lived in Portland for a year. I moved to Los Angeles. I lived in Los Angeles for a year. And then I moved back to New York. Like, this just happened in April. And I think I was just burnt out. And I didn't really need to, like, move anywhere. (laughs) But I was like, I got to get out of here, you know? And I probably would have, like, wasted significantly less money if I'd recognized that I was burnt out. And I could have just maybe stayed in New York and, like, I don't know, taken a trip to Bali for a couple months or something (laughs) like that. Um, But, no, I think that's the challenge is you don't recognize it. And so I think, to me, it's less about recognizing... 
trying to figure out if you're burnt out, certainly that's important, but um, recognizing, as you all do, that you cannot continue to work in the way that you are currently working, and so what are the ways that you, know, you might want to start to tweak that, and that's really what the podcast that I'm working on now, which is gonna launch next month, um, Hurry Slowly, is all about is kind of like, okay, how can we navigate work and life at a more sustainable pace? Yeah, I wanted to, you led me right into the next question. Take it away. I did it. Um, yeah, I wanted to, to ask you to tell us a little bit about Hurry Slowly mm-hmm. and um, maybe tell us about a few guests that you're going to have on the show yeah. and some of the topics that, that you're going to cover. Yeah. Well, it's funny, that name, so that name actually comes from this like Latin expression, Festina Lente, which means make haste slowly, which strangely I've been obsessed with for like 20 years. I actually wrote, backstory, I wrote my college thesis about the Milan Kundera book, Slowness, and like its relationship to French Enlightenment literature, like whatever, who cares? But anyway, I've been like obsessed with, like that whole book is about like the speed of sort of um, modernity juxtaposed against like sort of this 18th century libertine society, anyway. Um, So I realized I've like actually been really obsessed with this topic for a long time. But the podcast itself is, um, you know, so it's... um, I'm doing a theme per month. So every month there will be um, four interviews um, very directed around a specific theme. So I'm kicking off the podcast around um, the idea of work-life balance. And so like, what does working hard really mean? How do we define enough? Um, And um, for the first month I did an interview with Jason Fried, the founder of Basecamp. Um, This guy, Alex Pang, who wrote this book called Rest, uh, Why We Get More Done When We Work Less, um, which is amazing, really fascinating, um, in-depth interview about, um, you know, how, actually how much work your brain is doing when you're doing nothing at all, which is something that I think we really discount. Um, And I interviewed this woman, Tammy Foreman, who is the CEO of Path Forward, which is this nonprofit that helps women who have taken a break from the workforce to have a child transition back into the workforce. Um, And so we kind of talked about the role of gender and work-life balance and having a family. Um, But yeah, other folks, um, Tyler Cowan, who wrote The Complacent Class, Austin Kleon, the illustrator Wendy McNaughton, who I know you've interviewed, um, the designer Paula Scher. So like, it's a really eclectic mix of, you know, some creative folks, some, you know, people who are kind of in the trenches doing research about this stuff, and then some people who are kind of maybe a little bit more um, philosophical about the issues. And um, so kind of moving through these themes. So November is going to be risk-taking. After that, I think um, I'm going to be looking at managing your attention, um, thinking about a theme about sleep, um, also like what getting out in nature does for your creativity. So all that type of stuff. So in talking to all of these people, is there maybe one tidbit or one thing that you've learned <laughs> for yourself that you didn't know previously that you've applied to your life that's been helpful? Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, God, I think Tina's going to ask me that question. And I just remembered that I thought she was going to ask me that question as she was asking me the question. I didn't know what the answer was going to be. <laughs> anyway, um, I think one tip. Well, something that I've been thinking a lot about for myself lately that also came up in this um, interview with this guy, Alex Pang, who wrote the book Rest, um, is how much time we spend just, you know, just cramming things into our brain all the time, you know? So, like, we have a minute of downtime, or we're, like, cooking dinner, we're like, okay, let's listen to a podcast. Not that you shouldn't listen to podcasts, but, um, you know, you're listening to podcasts, you're reading an article, like, you're checking on Twitter, you know? And it's just, like, inputs, inputs, inputs. Um, and one of the things that Alex and I were talking about is that when you're 
when your brain is at rest, it's only five to 10% less active than when you're doing a calculus problem or when you're trying to you know, solve a difficult creative problem or you know, when you're trying to write your thesis, whatever. And, but what's happening during those time periods is that um, this default mode network, that's what it's called, and your brain gets activated. And, um, and what happens when that network activates is that these areas that are normally not necessarily connected kind of get connected. And so that's why a lot of times when we're just walking around the park or you're taking a shower, when you're letting your mind wander, you have those aha moments because your brain actually is doing all of this work. So, you know, I think it's just sort of like one lesson that I took away from doing interviews, but it's sort of like this larger theme of the whole podcast is like there actually is a really, really deep value in, you know, kind of being at rest, doing nothing, letting your mind wander, um, letting it do things without your conscious effort because there's a lot of creativity in those moments. That's really interesting. I like that. And I can't wait to listen to the podcast. Um, So I want to get back to what Daniel was talking about with creative ruts. Um, Because when I, so I was emailing Daniel, like, will you be a guest? He said, yes. And I said, oh, your fellow guest for the evening is Jocelyn. And, And he was like, oh my gosh, I think we can, you know, both him and I are like, we're going to learn so much. Uh, we're so excited. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> no pressure at all. Um, but one of the things, yeah, one of the things when you emailed me, you were saying, you know, I really want to, I think it's important to talk about this idea of creative ruts. And you had mentioned the creative rut that you were in and you talked a little bit about it tonight. Um, would you mind talking a little bit more and just kind of like giving some context for for that? Or just like in what way, like you were in a creative rut in the sense that, um, you didn't know what to make or you felt like you, the work wasn't good enough or? Sure. Um, so <laughs> what I experienced was dark. Um, I think it kind of sort of went hand in hand with like depression. I definitely went through <laughs> a little bit of a depression, um, which I think is like important to talk about. Um, and like I had so much pressure on myself, like, being like my years at school and like you know right after that I was like doing really well and I had like such a high standard for myself um that like doing anything like bad like I I just put so much pressure on myself that it was like paralyzing and I just like couldn't create any more any work anymore um so there was a period of time where I didn't do like any personal projects and rationally, I know to, like, cure any sort of creative rut is to create more work. But it was just impossible for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, like, I always, I, you know, I think what helps is, like, you know, find yourself a roommate who's an amazing therapist. <laughs> He's right here in the audience. His name is Omar Torres. <laughs> Find him on Psychology Today. <laughs> um, but he's helped me out a lot. Like, he, the most important thing that he taught me is to, like, be really kind to yourself. You have to, like, take those moments and not be angry at yourself for feeling down. Because the more you do that, the more in a hole you get. Um, and what Jocelyn just said about, like, doing nothing, I'm going to take that to heart and just, like, not do anything anymore. <laughs> Do it. Yeah. Or don't. I'm just going to take so many showers. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Thank you for sharing that. And I really appreciate you uh, being open enough to talk about mental health because I guarantee, you know, you're not the only, I mean, you're definitely not the only one. You know, there's so many of us in the room that have also either, either are going through something or have. Um, and so I just really appreciate you being open about that. Um, and so Jocelyn, have you had a period in your life where you're like, I'm in a creative rut, I'm stuck, I don't know. Well, it's funny. I am, my creative rut is more like, I think it's, it's, for me, it's always more about like choosing. Like there's always like a billion ideas and it's like, okay, which one, like which one do we work on? You know? And like, cause I'm, I'm, I have the creative problem of being like, I could starting is fine, but finishing is hard is like my particular challenge. Um, but I think that like to Daniel's point, you know, he was saying he puts like a lot or was putting too much pressure on himself. And I think that we really have that mentality. Like, um, I wrote a, I was writing a blog post a while ago. I had this, um, you know, one of the reasons I got burned out is, um, was working really hard at this, at this startup at 99U at the time. And, um, we published, um, I edited, we published three books in a row. We published three books in 18 months, which I don't know, maybe doesn't sound like a lot, but for books, that's like crazy. And, um, the third book had just come out and, um, I was visiting with a friend of mine who had, um, or sort of a work colleague who had come into the office, and I was like, oh. he's like, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I published this book this week, you know? And he was like, cool. We talked about it for like 20 seconds, and then he was like, what else? And I was like, like, does there have to be another thing? Like, I published a book, you know? But I think we have that mentality, right? Like, we're like, okay, uh-huh, uh-huh, like, what next, what next, what next? And I think that that, like, there's this, like, the the field has to lie fallow before the harvest, right? Like, we don't give ourselves that time to kind of rest and retool. And um, there's some, like, interesting kind of Brian Eno quote about that, of, like, kind of, like, letting the momentum run down. Um, and to me, I think that's maybe why transitions are so hard, especially if you're someone who gets really passionately involved in um, a job or a particular product, or excuse me, a particular project, and you kind of give like 110% of yourself, but you have to like let that momentum run down and kind of separate yourself from that project or that job and like, who am I separately from that? Or like, what do I want to create separately from that? You know? And so to me, it feels like that's why those transitions are so hard and also why like, you know, starting creative projects like back to back is so difficult. Like you have to kind of let that momentum run down and let it, you know, kind of plant some new seeds and give them a little time. Yeah, that's good. You said making decisions is your challenge. And in I, so I listened to a preview of, of the podcast, Hurry Slowly, and you interview Scott Belsky. And, what, mm -hmm. and he, he says this thing that, you know, when, oh, the most frequent decision we make is to not make a decision. Mm -hmm. Right? So who here in the, you know, in the room or listening at home has ever said, well, I'm just not going to decide right now. I'll, I'll make a decision later. That ha I feel like I do that at least once a day. <laughs> yep. I mean, you're still making a decision. You're just deciding not to make a decision. So, I mean, t talk to me about that and how, like, what is going on in our brains or wh why do we do that? And how can well, we, and is it, is it efficient? Is it helpful? <laughs> is it helpful? I mean, sometimes there's, there's a lot of angles to this, right? You listen to that particular episode. Um, Oh, but so one of the other people I interviewed when we were, you know, kind of going deep on decision-making was this woman, Renata Seletzel, who's this um, Slovenian philosopher who wrote this really amazing book called The Tyranny of Choice. And it's um, very much about how living in this world of infinite choice creates a lot of anxiety for us. Um, 
And so you start to feel, you know, we, we get in this space where you want to make the right choice, right? Like the ideal choice. Um, but one of the things that she said to me, which I thought was, I, I thought was kind of great was, you know, like, well, if you can, if you know it's the right choice, like then there's no surprise, like there's no chance, there's no luck, you know, there's, you're just like, how boring is it to be like, oh yeah, you know what, this is the right job. And like four years later, you're like, I nailed that call, you know, like this is exactly what I thought it would be, you know, or like same thing with dating or same thing with moving to a new city, right? Like it's super boring if you make the ideal choice. Um, so I don't know, there's something interesting about that idea of, of, realizing that making the right choice is maybe not even the most interesting thing and that, you know, putting a little bit less pressure on ourselves and kind of being more like, oh, well, you know, it's, I mean, I, I, maybe not always, but sometimes it's nice to experience some surprises. <laughs> yeah, I think we want to avoid surprises, but also we would be bored if we weren't surprised. Like, <laughs> yeah. like Daniel, when you moved to New York, you knew, like, oh, I, I think it's going to go well, but I don't know. It could... I think that was my problem. I had so many expectations. Mm -hmm. Like, I was doing so well. I thought the momentum would keep going, but I mean, it, you know, when you move to a new city, it's going to be hard on anyone. Um, and I think that was like my downfall. Like I just had too many expectations and there was like, you know, there was a transitioning period to like building up my clients and like letting everyone know that I was in New York, but also I was just starting out. So, you know, there's that, but yeah, definitely. Yeah. And so we, so we've talked about, you know, all the fun things tonight, like creative ruts, burnout, uh, not being able to make decisions. <laughs> and so I guess that leads me into, um, you know, something that, that Daniel, you, you were sharing also when we were corresponding that one of the things that's really helped you a lot is being more mindful, meditating and taking care of yourself. And, um, so I guess I want to ask both of you, you know, how has self-care played a role in helping you be more creative, but just also happier in life in general? Because I know, Jocelyn, you've written about this as well. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think it's, I think it's just like that, not doing that kind of like, that like white knuckling, you know, when you're kind of sitting at the computer and you're like, ah, you're like on deadline or whatever, you know, you're like, I gotta come up with the next idea. And you're just like sitting there like, ah, like, it's like the worst state to be in to be creative, right? Like that's never, you're never like, yes, like that doesn't happen, right? Like never, you know? So like just like <laughs> being a little more conscious of that and like, and going easier on my, you know, just being like, eh, I'm going to like go take a walk or, you know, step away, like step, a lot of, there's a lot of like step away from the computer. Like for me, that's self-care is basically like step one, step five, step 17, step away from the computer. Um, but I think, you know, just, yeah, trying to take it a little easier on yourself when it's understanding when something's not flowing, when it's not coming, like, that's okay, and you just need to do something different, like, whatever that is, you know? Yeah, that's good, and I totally get the white knuckling at the computer where you're like, <laughs> I've been here for 10 hours, and my breakthrough idea is almost here, if I can just sit here another mm -hmm. hour, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it never happens, and you leave the computer, and within half an hour, you're like, oh, I solved it. Yeah, well, and it's just stress. Like, one of the other people that I was talking to in that, that particular episode you were referring to about decision-making, you know, um, was this uh, guy, Bill Duggan, researcher at Columbia Business School, and he was talking about how, you know, when you're in that moment, right, like, you're, you're getting upset, you're getting frustrated, and so you're releasing cortisol, you're getting stressed out, and that, like, puts you into this fight-or-flight mode, and it's literally, like, you just can't, like, you can't think, like, because you're in fight-or-flight mode. So, like, when you can't think, there's no way you're going to be able to make prog progress, you know, so you kind of just have to, you know, dial it down a little bit. 
Yeah, that's great advice. Um, Daniel, what has helped you in terms of self-care and, and how has that influenced your work and just overall life? Sure. So like uh, self-care, like meditation, being more mindful didn't come, didn't come until like, like since I moved to New York, really. Um, like I said, like my mom passed away a month before I started school. Didn't deal with it well. <laughs> I just went straight into school. I don't think I ever even really told the people at my school that my mom passed away. I just like blocked it out. Um, and so I, I put my entire life into that work. And I, I think as freelancers, we're sort of wired to just like work, 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 work. Like, you know, we feel we start feeling guilty if we like don't do that. Um, which I think is a problem um, because what happens is that I'm a very good example of this. I spent four years like not dealing with my mom's passing um, and it like all came crashing down. Um, and like I couldn't work, like make personal work or do anything. Like, of course, you know, my job's like I was doing great, it was fine, but creatively I just wasn't feeling fulfilled. Um, and I think being happy as a person, I know, like, there's, like, that, like, uh, like, cliche of, like, the struggling artist, like, you kind of need to be unhappy to make good work. I don't know if that's necessarily true. Like, for myself especially, like, it goes hand in hand. Like, I need to be happy with my personal life for my work life to be good. I need to be great with my work life to my personal life to be good. It's, like, kind of a catch-22, but, um, but, yeah, it's... Definitely helped me a ton. Just in general, I think it's just good to check in with yourself mm-hmm. from time to time. Yeah, it sure is. Well, thank you for sharing, guys. I have one last question for you. Um, <laughs> I'm worried. What is this going to be? I know. I see your expression. <laughs> um, so, so last night I was I got sucked into watching some new TED videos, some new TED talks, and uh, as one does. <laughs> Did you TED binge? I did. Sometimes I can't help myself. And then I start texting all my friends like, hey, you should watch this. It's really great. You should watch this. They're like, it's 1130. Why aren't you in bed? Um, so I was watching the, um, it was the writer, Anne Lamott, gave a talk. And the title of her talk is 12 Truths I Learned from Life and Writing. If you haven't watched it, it's great. And it if, is if you don't watch sure. it, I'm going to text you and tell you to watch it. So you just go watch it. Um, so I'm going to quote her. This is a little lengthy, but I like it. So I'm going to go for it. Um, so she, she's talking about these 12 things that she's learned from life and writing. And she starts off with the first one. And she says, the first and truest thing is that all truth is a paradox. Life is both a precious, unfathomably beautiful gift. And it's impossible here on the incarnational side of things. It's been a very bad match for those of us who were born extremely sensitive. It's so hard and weird that we sometimes wonder if we're being punked. It's filled simultaneously with heartbreaking sweetness and beauty, desperate poverty, floods, and babies, and acne, and Mozart, all swirled together. I don't think it's an ideal system. So that's her first truth. The second truth is a little lighter. It's almost everything will work again if you unplug it for a few minutes. Such a good one. So, so good. true. So good. Universal. Including us. That's true. And that's what she says. <laughs> you watched it. I can tell. So I know that both of you have done some living. You have a lot left to do. Um, 
But I want to ask you, based on the living you've done so far, tell me at least one thing that you know to be true in this moment today. Oh my God, I thought you were going there. Okay, that's good. It was good you gave us that long excerpt so we could think about it during that. Are you ready? Do you need more time? I, actually, I think I'm ready. Um, mine is going to be that curiosity is the best mentor. Oh, good answer. I'm That's so jealous. So good. Same. Same. Did you come prepared? <laughs> Same. <laughs> <laughs> like that. <laughs> Daniel saying same. Yeah. Well, you, gotta, you gotta prepare people for that question. That's brutal. That I is... gave a really long quote. I thought you could work on your answer while I was. I didn't know what was coming after right? that. <laughs> that was, was kind of a little cruel. So, Jocelyn, you were an interviewer. I actually just thought, I thought of that line earlier when I was like, what am I gonna say about mentors? So that's why I had it. You're, Jocelyn, you're an interviewer. Are you gonna ask me what my. Oh. What mine is? Yeah, why don't you. Yeah. Tina. Well, I came prepared because I knew I was going to yeah, ask this question. Yeah, that's not fair. Wait, okay, we should ask her a different question. Let's rebel. Well, oh let me tell I'm you... I'm Let me tell you what... I have a couple truths, but the one, the one that I wrote down that I wanted to say that has been a really big truth for me this year is that we have to leave room for not knowing. Period. Okay, so if you want to ask me another question now... Is the okay, time. okay, I'm, I'm going to give you more... That's a great tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <I'm a> lot. <laughs> um, Something that's true. Okay, hold on. I'm gonna ask her a question. Keep okay, go. Okay. okay, go. Um, Wait, can you repeat the question again? Um, what is one thing that you know to be true, based on your experiences? So there's no right or wrong. It's subjective. Okay. While well, Daniel's thinking, um, what's the best decision that you've ever made, Tina? Oh my gosh. And she, I, I think you don't have children because that's the easy answer. So this makes it harder. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank you for giving me my, my No, it's no, not, can't be Ryan. Um, can't be Ryan. Okay. I'll say this. It's not <laughs> one decision. It is an ongoing decision to be vulnerable and open up to the people in my life. And I think it's, um, it's like the scariest and hardest decision, but it's the, the decision that, um, has given me the most rewards in terms of deepening my friendships and relationships immensely. And it's an ongoing decision that I have to make. Mm-hmm. And I hope I make, I hope I make it every time. And when I don't, I get to, I get to try again next time. <laughs> Daniel, did I talk long enough? Yep. All right, go for it. Are you, are, right, are you guys ready it. for this? It's deep. <laughs> it's ready? <laughs> I don't know if I believe this, but it sounds really good. <laughs> are you guys ready? <laughs> I think where you are in life is exactly where you're supposed to be. Nice. Nice. <laughs> that, that reminds me, I just, my like, favorite thing I've seen, I don't know, like in the past few months was Issa Rae tweeted out and she just said, um, I make excellent mistakes. Mm. I was like, yes. That's good. <laughs> Everyone go home this week and make excellent mistakes. <laughs> All right. Well, those are all the questions I have. Uh, Daniel, Jocelyn, thank you so much for coming out and sharing your time with us tonight. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. This episode was produced by The Great Discontent and me, Benjamin Welch. The Great Discontent features in-depth conversations with today's artists, makers, and risk takers. You can learn more at thegreatdiscontent.com. 
And of course, you can subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving us a rating in iTunes. It really does help spread the word. Thanks so much for listening.